Hello everyone, in this episode we're going to be talking through the first movement of Act 1, Scene 1 of King Lear. Welcome back to A Level Lit Cast. Today we're going to be really diving into the play in a bit more detail and starting at the beginning because it's quite a good place to start uh, and looking at the first movement of Act 1, Scene 1. We're looking at the first movement rather than the first scene because the first scene is very long, complicated but incredibly important. There's lots and lots of valuable um, information in terms of quotes, in terms of themes, motifs being established, um, the initial impressions we get of characters. So it's definitely worth spending some real time on this um, and getting our heads around it, because if we get our heads around this, then the rest of the play becomes an awful lot easier to understand. So while I'm talking through some elements of the scene and some relevant information around that, I will be mentioning some critics. So if you are listening to this as a Langlet student and I mention the name of a person and something they say about the play, that is not relevant to your exam. It's really interesting and it certainly enhances your understanding of the play, but it is not relevant to your exam response and you do not need to include it. If you're a literature student, then it is more relevant to you. So we open in a stateroom in King, in King Lear's palace and we actually meet the characters of the subplot first rather than the characters of the main plot. And you can decide whether you think this is an appropriate dramatic choice or not and whether it adds something to the play or whether it detracts. Um, and that, again, uh, is something that our critics have quite a lot to say about too. So we're introduced to two of the three characters, Gloucester and Edmund. We are not introduced to Edgar yet. Um, and we're also introduced to Leah's faithful servant, Kent, um, who can kind of provide that bridge between um, these plots in, in the first instance. So Leah is about to abdicate and divide the kingdom. We know this, um, and we know that they know this as well. So they, are, they know that Leah's already decided on the division of the kingdom, but the opening lines, um, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. It did always seem so to us, but now. That but now is really important. Um, followed then by, in the division of the kingdom, it appears not. So those two phrases really tell us that actually even Leah's closest advisors, companions, are unsure of his plans. They don't quite know what he's going to do. So even though we haven't met him yet, we get this distinct impression that he is someone who um, is potentially unpredictable and possibly brash in a political sense. Um, we uh, we hear about Albany and Cornwall, but we don't hear they're married to Goneril and Regan. Um, there's no mention of Cordelia yet, so we don't know about kind of the, the daughters um, and their part in this at this point. But then um, the rest of this little section, this 30, 35 lines or so, um, explores Edmund and Gloucester, um, and in particular how Edmund came to exist. And Gloucester reveals that Edmund um, is his illegitimate son, um, and you kind of get a, a feeling of their relationship and he describes the good sport he enjoyed at his making only a short time um, after the birth of his legitimate son. Uh, because we know that Edgar's slightly older, because he mentions it, um, but I have a son, sir, by order of law, some year elder than this, who yet is no dearer in my account. So this bit is really important. Um, and it can seem, when you first look at the play, when you first read the play, um, you can potentially look at it and say, well, it's the subplot. And 
Leah's not even entered, so there's not much point in, in focusing on this and spending some time on this, but there really is. And that's because you really get a sense of who Gloucester is and we are being primed as an audience, potentially, to feel some sort of empathy for Edmund. Um, we know, and again... Uh, we talk about this without any sense of spoilers because we know the plot, we know the we know the play, we know how how all of this pans out. We know Edmund does some pretty bad things. We know Edmund is essentially the bad guy of the play, and and obviously different characters uh, adopt that role throughout. Um, and there's also uh, a school of thinking that perhaps looks at Edmund as more of a hero um, than the villain. But traditionally, you would think of him. Uh, as that in terms of the acts that he commits you would think of him as that but we need to have some justification as to why he might feel like that we need to potentially understand um, his reasoning and his logic and this maybe gives us a bit of insight into that and again everything that I'm saying you could argue against it and that is the beauty of literature it's the wonder of literature the fact that we can sit and we can have this discussion and, and everyone can bring something new and new experiences to the table so uh, we uh, understand, one of the first things we understand about Edmund is that he is illegitimate. Um, and the first line that kind of references Edmund um, is from Kent, is this not your son, my lord? And Gloucester's first line about his son is, it, it, it very much uh, encapsulates this strange, tense relationship um, which Gloucester seems to you know, be blind to, ironically, but uh, him saying, his breeding, sir, hath been at my charge. He's not saying, yes, he's my son. He's immediately referring to the physical act that led to Edmund being born. So it's that, that plays on his mind more than the outcome, which seems, it, it just seems like a strange way to introduce your son. And it's, clear later on that he has um a quite a positive relationship with him or at least he thinks he does but these lines kind of show a lack of respect and there is a real lack of respect for Edmund certainly for his mother and for his dignity and for um for his uh kind of honor in a way and that is a theme that then continues so the, this Act 1, Scene 1, um, all three movements of it, really, uh, sow the seeds for themes and motifs that occur later on. So this idea of showing little concern for your children's dignity and, and introduces that concept that children exist to love and, and respect and look after parents. And there's not necessarily... It's not a two-way street of respect. And that's mirrored with Lear, if you think about the love test that uh, happens in the second movement of this act, and um, of this scene, sorry, and the expectation that these daughters are to provide for him. And all throughout, that's what he, um, that's what he talks about. This, he's so surprised that this is considered to be an inconvenience to his daughters that he wants to live with them with his hundred nights. And he doesn't understand why they would not be really happy to do this. It's just one of many ways that the Gloucester and Sons storyline um, mirrors the Leah and Daughters storyline. And some people would say that the fact that these um, storylines are mirrored 
gives us uh, an opportunity to explore them from different perspectives, maybe um, kind of heighten some of the themes because they're repeated across different contexts. But then others argue that it detracts because you're thinking about two at the same time. And that's, that's down to you in your opinion. So some of the language here, um, and I'm not going to go through the language in detail because I've already shared uh, a model annotated extract of this and um, we've already kind of we, we've talked through it um, before if you're listening to this and you've not talked through it then that's something that will happen in class um, very soon I'm sure but we've got puns we've got you know, pun on the word conceive um, and uh, we've got uh, pun on the word fault um, we've got issue uh, lots of kind of words uh, in here and lots of plays on words um, which is something that we see a lot in Shakespeare that he does very, very well. It's a very kind of clever use of um, specific language, specific words um, to conjure up certain ideas um, that uh, maybe perhaps are not being explored on the surface in, um, in the scenes that are being played out. But one thing that, that is really kind of obvious here is the, the brashness and the boardiness and the kind of uncomfortable level of chat about Edmund's mother that is that Gloucester is delivering in these opening lines with Edmund present and it's it's uncomfortable for us so we can imagine how uncomfortable it would be for him you know it's funny for us because it's uncomfortable so we can imagine just how uncomfortable um, it is for him. And you could, you know, you could look at the, the idea that, that Gloucester is very, it's, it's almost like he's proud. He very much enjoyed, um, he enjoyed the night of, of Edmund's conception. But there is this idea, you know, I have so often blushed to acknowledge him. He's still potentially embarrassed by the fact that Edmund is illegitimate, that he is Gloucester's son. He's tied to Gloucester biologically. Um, and there's, you know, that, that's a bond that can't break. And that again, starts to introduce a theme here that is present throughout the entire rest of the play repeatedly. And that is this idea of the natural order of things, the natural world, um, versus kind of the belief systems, um, that are in place and the social systems that are in place in Britain at the time. And, uh, the the idea of natural order um things like the divine right of kings and primogeniture which is something that you again will explore um in more detail in your lessons but the divine right of kings is the idea that a king is chosen by god and has um therefore a status higher than ordinary humans uh, effectively um so and that is that's part of the natural order um and inheritance also sort of forms uh, a small part of that kind of idea. There's there's a natural order as to how things happen. Um, and there's certain roles that we must play in society and certain ideals that we must fulfill in society. And sometimes that doesn't play out and sometimes that is played with. But if it's played with, there are dire consequences. And that whole concept is explored in great detail and Edmund likes to um, very much kind of exploit that and exploit playing with the natural order of things. So biology versus loyalty um, and filial love is kind of clear here and this sense of appearance versus reality. So isn't, is not not this your son, my lord? He obviously looks like his father because biologically they are um, connected, but 
Then Gloucester saying, his breeding sir hath been at my charge. But he doesn't say he's my son. So it's, yes, he appears to be my son. He's sort of my son. The reality is he is illegitimate and this is how it happened, etc. So there's some themes being introduced. There's also um, quite a bit of uh, foreshadowing. Um, we talked about the word moiety in lessons, but moiety, that idea of directly translating to half. So um, the sense of foreshadowing that um, the kingdom will not be split into three, despite there being three daughters, it will be split into half because Cordelia is disowned. Um, and uh, the kind of sense there of competition too so there's the words more and he values most when talking about um Leah and the kingdom so those comparatives are showing rivalry and again mirroring the mirroring happening between the two plots all the time uh later on um where uh Gloucester is talking about though this knave came something saucily to the world before he was sent for um he actually says just before that uh but I have a son, sir, by order of law, some year elder than this, who yet is no dearer in my account. There's financial connotations there. So in the same way that there's a sense of um, materialism, more he values most with Leah and Albany and Cornwall, there's a sense of materialism um, with the financial connotations of no dearer in my account um, with Gloucester. So we get a very clear impression of Edmund as this illegitimate son. He seems to be kind of loved and seen as um, very much a part of the family, but it's it's the first thing we're introduced to, and um, it's something that Gloucester just seems to linger on as well. Which, when you've never, you know, it's then it becomes clear that um, that Edmund's never met Kent, so this complete stranger is being informed of the night of Edmund's conception with Edmund present it's just a mortifying situation but illegitimacy rates were rising during Shakespeare's lifetime so it's not like this is um, a particularly weird or unusual event Um, but notions of illegitimacy were complex so officially English common law maintained illegitimates could not inherit and that's um, through this idea of primogeniture, so the eldest legitimate son would inherit. Um, that obviously is an issue for Leah, who has no sons, um, which is kind of where the love test and him splitting the kingdom and things kind of comes into play. Um, but primogeniture kind of follows that idea. Uh, so English common law maintains illegitimates could not inherit, but in civil law, illegitimates could inherit property. So Edmund is, strictly speaking, uh, what's called a filius nullius, which is um, a heraldic legal term for a nothing son, which is not a very nice uh, term, but that that is what he is. But he's effectively legitimised when Gloucester later banishes Edgar. Um, And then uh, he therefore can inherit. So in richer families and in the courts, um, illegitimacy was maybe seen as a bit of a social embarrassment, but it wasn't an insurmountable hurdle. It wasn't something that just meant all doors were completely shut. So that could sway you and make you feel perhaps that Edmund is still massively irrational because those doors aren't necessarily completely shut for him. You know, Gloucester is a very good friend of the king. Maybe something could have been done there. But that is, again, open very much to interpretation. So um, critics have a lot to say about this this opening, uh, and especially now we've we've talked through 
the language in, in quite a bit of detail again in lessons and you've got those annotations there um so gloucester acknowledges edmund as his son but uh, at the end um if you remember he says uh he hath been out nine years and away he shall again um I'm just checking that that's actually what... Yes, that's right. He hath been out nine years and away he shall again, uh, just before he says the king is coming. So he tells Kent he's going to send him away again and that he's been away for quite a while. So some critics believe this second banishment is the reason why Edmund behaves the way he does. So Coleridge, um, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, a very famous um, kind of literary analyst and writer, uh, believed that Edmund was outraged by the light way in which Gloucester sp- has spoken of his mother. And you would understand that, right? So if someone had spoken about one of your parents like that um, to a complete stranger, you would be embarrassed, cross, um, and you'd maybe want to do something about it. And uh, that can provide a certain amount of justification for his actions. Now, obviously his actions um escalate but you can you can kind of get some level of uh, empathy or poten- potentially there and several critics also call out gloucester's uh tone and the his use of language in this opening um so leo tolstoy um who's a very famous russian novelist uh believed that uh the coarseness of these words of gloucester is out of place in the mouth of a person intended to represent a noble character um so tolstoy uh, wrote that in his critical essays on shakespeare all of these critics have um critical essays on shakespeare um many of them are available online uh so if i can get hold of digital copies um for you to be able to have a look at if you so wish then um, i will put them on google classroom for you or put extracts on google classroom for you um now what's important to think about with critics and that's why um, i've kind of chosen this particular quote to talk about is that critics are coming from their own context, their own perspective. So critics at different times in history, critics with different viewpoints or different ideologies are going to say very different things about the same text. And that, again, is the beauty and the wonder of literature, the fact that we can all bring our own context to the stage, we can all bring our own um, experiences and say something um, different, but... Uh, it does mean that therefore we are allowed to disagree and we are allowed to um, certainly explore and critically evaluate um, that uh, you know, some of these comments that are being made. So Tolstoy um, is really basing his criticism of Shakespeare on his own assumptions about noble characters, the way they should act, the way they should behave. So you can have a look at that and kind of consider um, should these characters be that sort of one-dimensional archetype um, that fulfill all of those expectations or um, should they be more multi-dimensional uh, and what's the impact of that do you think that Tolstoy is correct in expressing the view that characters are more understandable when they're one-dimensional or do you believe that more complex multi-dimensional characters are perhaps more interesting um, add more dramatic development um, or anything like that Now, in contrast to Gloucester's verbose account of the night of Edmund's conception, Edmund is notably silent until he is directly questioned. So where he says, do you know this noble gentleman, Edmund? Um, That's line 23, I believe. Uh, And then Edmund says, no, my lord, very formal response, Um, a notably formal response, actually, after he's been insulted 
by Gloucester with stories of his birth and accounts of his mother. We could argue that this is symbolic of his position as the bastard son because he has no voice, rights or position in society, but it also means from a dramatic perspective that Shakespeare can keep Edmund's true character concealed at this point so that when his soliloquy comes along in Act 1, Scene 2, um, it's exciting and surprising and Edmund is often portrayed in um, in the performed versions of King Lear as uh, a very enigmatic character, a very um, compelling, uh, interesting um, and... Uh, kind of um, alluring character so he talks directly to the audience in his soliloquies he brings us in to his plotting and we kind of enjoy it and want to go along for the ride a little bit and and that is um that's kind of part of his mystery the fact that he doesn't speak in this opening uh sequence and that um because he speaks in isolation with us in his soliloquy it's almost like he's sharing a secret with us so we feel important and special and that perhaps would garner sympathy um for him and again you might disagree with that but that is again is is an interpretation of it he has a very polite exterior which conceals his evil nature. So right from the first line where we're introduced with him, um, intru- introduced to him when Kent says, is not this your son, my lord? And then Gloucester, his breeding sir, hath been at my charge. Um, that appearance and reality there. We, we can see that that dichotomy is present throughout um, from the first moment his character is, is introduced. The idea that he is not what he seems. And... Um, Gloucester takes his control of Edmund for granted because, and we can see that through the the kind of language that he uses around him. Um, but it also shows us that Gloucester is perhaps simply ignorant of these things, blind to Edmund's situation and maybe the sensitivity of it. Again, blindness and sight, a theme that is repeated, um, and uh, eyes being that motif really throughout um, throughout the play. And questions about family relationships are raised here. Um, Gloucester clearly has quite lax morals. We don't see him as a particularly likeable character in this opening. Um, He is trying to uh, impress and doesn't really do the best job of it. Um, And it it really uh, sets us up for Leah's entrance and the same... Uh, themes, the same ideas to be played out on a much grander, formal, royal stage with verse rather than prose um, and um, these formal speeches, declarations of love uh, in comparison to this um, very informal exchange that we have as, uh, as a starting point. So one last thing to mention in terms of context, um, because it leads us really nicely on into the next uh, movement of Act 1, Scene 1, is the idea of inheritance issues. There is a really good podcast um, called Shakespeare and Politics that explores um, the the political context of King Lear and explores um, the impact that some of these lines have. Um, So inheritance issues were a matter of national concern for Shakespeare's audience because in the late 16th and early 17th century, um, Elizabeth I had been unmarried and childless, which created a fear of civil war at her death. The new king, James I of England and also James uh, VI of Scotland, wanted to unite his two territories into one British kingdom. So in the light of these developments, Leah's decision to divide Britain into three would have struck many in the audience as the height of folly and it would have been something that was um, really present uh, 
uh, kind of in everyone's minds. So exploring the destructive consequences of splitting up this kingdom and um, rather than unifying kind of really solidifies James uh, the first slash James the sixth's decisions. Okay. So that's uh, the first movement of Act 1, Scene 1. Just a few more comments, really, than what we've done in lessons. Um, And I will see you in the next one. Thank you.